Well, tonight, tonight we, we return back to our study in 2 Kings. Kings. We're, We're now, now in 2 Kings, Kings chapter 13. We'll be, we'll be looking, looking at verses 10 through 25. 2 Kings 13, 10 through 25. I think I, think I was told when I was growing up many times, times that America is the land of second chances. Now I think, I think when they say that, they mean not only second chances, second, third, fourth, fifth, and so on. And this, and this may, may not, not be true for everyone, particularly in our, our modern cancel culture, as, as we call it. But it is true that some folks seem to get opportunity after opportunity, don't they? In fact, we all know those individuals who seem to have failed in one thing or another and get an opportunity again and again and again with undeserved grace and compassion. Well, does, does this, this undeserved grace and compassion in and of itself, the opportunity for a second chance, actually change a person? We're going to see what takes place in the King Jehoash. In this section of Scripture, verses 10 through 13 tells us the synopsis of his life, and then the second section tells us perhaps the most important event in his life. Follow along as I read. In the 37th year of Joash, king of Judah, Jehoash, the son of Jehoahaz, began to reign over Israel and Samaria, and he reigned 16 years. He also did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin, but he walked in them. Now the rest of the acts of Joash, all that he did, and the might with which he fought against Amaziah, king of Judah, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Joash slept with his fathers, and Jeroboam sat on his throne, and Joash was buried in Samaria with the kings of Israel. Now, when Elisha had fallen sick with the illness of which he was to die, Joash, king of Israel, went down to him and wept before him, crying, My father! My father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And Elisha said to him, Take a bow and arrows. So he took a bow and arrows. Then he said to the king of Israel, Draw the bow. And he drew it. And Elisha laid his hands on the king's hands. And he said, Open the window eastward. And he opened it. Then Elisha said, Shoot. And he shot. And he, and he said, the Lord's arrow of victory, the arrow of victory over Syria, for you shall fight the Syrians in Aphek until you have made an end of them. And he said, take the arrows. And he took them. And he said to the king of Israel, strike the ground with them. And he struck three times and stopped. Then the man of God was angry with him and said, you should have struck five or six times. Then you would have struck down Syria until you had made an end of it, but now you will strike down Syria only three times. So Elisha died, and they buried him. Now bands of Moabites used to invade land in the spring of the year, and as a man was being buried, behold, a marauding band was seen, and a man was thrown into the grave of Elisha, and as soon as the man touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood on his feet. Now Hazel... King of Syria oppressed Israel all the days of Jehoahaz. But the Lord was gracious to them and had compassion on them, and he turned toward them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he would not destroy them, nor has he cast them from his presence until now. 
When Hazael, king of Syria, died, Ben-Hadad, his son, became king in his place. Then Jehoash, the son of Jehoaz, took again from Ben-Hadad, the son of Hazael, the cities that he had taken from Jehoaz, his father, in war. Three times Joash defeated him and recovered the cities of Israel. So we consider this passage, God's very word, let us bow briefly in prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word, even the puzzling aspects of it, even the amazing parts of it. We pray that you would open our ears and our hearts that we might hear and understand your word. And we pray that you might change us by the power of your word and spirit. Lord, may all the things done here, said here, spoken here, thought here, be pleasing in your sight. Be consistent with your word, or else pass away and never be heard from again. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what about God's promises? One of his promises is a promise of the Messiah. Remember how long the people of Israel waited for that Messiah to come, hundreds and hundreds of years. But the other promise that God makes is a promise that we should not take lightly either, and that is the promise of judgment. For Israel, remember, by this time, they had Rehoboam, Jeroboam, Nadab, Basha, Elah, Zimri, Omri, they had, they had all the house of Ahab and his sons and all of that mess. They had Jehu by now and his sons. Jehu, Jehoahaz, and now Jehoash. During all of those times, all of those decades after decades of rule, not one king in Israel, the northern kingdom after the split, was a good king. All of them. Follow the sins of the first one, Jeroboam, who took the kingdom out of the hands of Rehoboam, except for the two tribes of Judah and Benjamin, Simeon amongst them as well. And he took all of those ten tribes of the north, and he had them worship golden calves, telling them these were the gods that brought you out of Egypt. This is the sin of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, and every single king of Israel until the day that God took away that kingdom worshipped those golden calves. Every one of them. How could God wait so long to fulfill his judgment upon Israel? After all, he said, if you will not worship me, you will not obey my commands, I will bring a curse upon you, and I will remove you from your land. And yet, decade after decade, king after king, including Joash here, they still were in Israel. Second Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. What was the promise? The promise in that context is judgment day and the return of the Lord. You see, we tend to think that God is slow to fulfill judgment. And yet, and yet, if he was fast about his judgment, none of us would have any hope, would we? By God's grace, he is patient. He is patient about his grace to the unworthy, even in the midst of yet another unworthy king. In the midst of even this king giving an unworthy response to his word and promise. And then also to an unworthy nation, for by this time, except for a small remnant, all of them 
were unworthy and worshiping the gods of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. What about this king? Here's Jehoash, remember in this line of kings, we've now come to Jehu and Jehoash. Now this is the second of the four descendants of Jehu who will reign. Jehoash, his son Jeroboam, there'll be one more after Jeroboam. And it says just a few things in these verses. Here's the formulaic way in which 2 Kings gives these things. It tells us when he started to reign in the 37th year of Jehoash, king of Judah. It tells us his name and who his father was, Jehoash, the son of Jehoash. He began to reign over Israel and Samaria. It tells us how long he reigned. 16 years. But you know, it doesn't really tell us a lot else about Jehoash, does it? First of all, it tells us that he's a king like his father and his grandfather. It says this. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin, but he walked in them. In fact, we looked here a couple weeks ago at how Jehu had the opportunity, because he now had destroyed the house of Ahab, he had the opportunity to turn the nation back to the Lord in his zeal by removing Baal worship from the land. But instead he returned to this idol worship that Jeroboam had started. And so this king was no different, along with his grandfather Jehu and his father Jehoahaz, who we looked last week was one who just maintained the religious status quo of idolatry, and, and he, he was, was just, just like his, his father and his grandfather. And so, and so here's, here's what it said. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, in the Lord's eyes. The same, the same old thing. Status quo. Well, here it is. Just doing the same old thing that all the kings of Israel do. They commit this evil in God's eyes. And then not only this, it tells us, not only did he follow these things, he walked in this idolatry. In other, In other words, words he, he went, went after, after the idols. And other than one other brief mention, by the way, he fought against Amaziah, king of Judah. And then, and then it gives us the rest of the formula. The rest of his acts are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Joash slept with his fathers, and Jeroboam, or Jeroboam being his son, sat on his throne. Joash was buried in Samaria with the kings of Israel. He is a king like all the other kings. And it's almost as if you're reading it, blah, 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 blah. Just like everybody else. He lived, he reigned, he fought, he died. That's, That's what it says about Jehoash here. Now, it's interesting, it's, it's unlike most of the other formulaic things here. In the next few verses, we're going to go back and see probably the most important event in his life. But this is a reminder, he's just another unworthy king. Now, I don't know how it happened. I don't remember. I must have signed up for something at some point or other, but... My email address, many, I think the first year I was here perhaps, was added to a rather discouraging list. Every Saturday morning, I get an email in my inbox from MikeRenews.com, and it says, here is your list of obituaries. 
At first, I would glance through them and I'd read them. I was interested where people would come from, what they had done, all these other things. But after a while, week in and week out, you get this list of obituaries, and pretty soon it seems to be the same kind of thing. They were born, they live at life, sometimes interesting, sometimes not so interesting, sometimes with details, sometimes very little details, and then they died. And so now, most weeks, I actually just go in and I see that email and I delete it. And I, and I think, think I don't, I don't want to read all this all over again. They, born, they, they were born, they lived, they did this, this and that, and then they died. died. Sometimes they will say well, they were a member of such and such church, and sometimes they will say other things, perhaps about their spiritual life. But it never says in the paper they did good in the eyes of the Lord, or they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. That's what the obituaries in the books of First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles do. They, they determine their life on whether or not they were following the Lord. The obituaries in MyOrientNews.com does not do that. What was kingdom significant about the life of these individuals? We find out, unfortunately, for Jehoash, there was nothing of significance to the, the kingdom of God in his, his reign as king. What a disappointing line of kings in Israel. And yet, and yet to make matters worse, not better, but worse, here is this next section of scripture. You might think it's all about Elisha, but really we'll find out it's all about God here. Of course, who is Elisha? Elisha is the mighty prophet. He's the one who has the double spirit or the double portion of spirit of Elijah. He is the one who's done amazing miracles and done amazing things. In fact, he is the one person in Israel who seems to be a consistent thorn in the side of the king of Assyria, or of Syria, rather. He is the one guy who Hazel and Ben-Hadad don't like because he is the one who can defeat an army by prayer. It's amazing. So, so here is this, this unworthy king, Jehoahaz, who is evil and who is a Jeroboam calf worshiper. And he goes and he hears that Elisha has fallen sick and is near death. He goes down and says, Joash, king of Israel, went down to him and wept before him, crying, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And you might think, what in the world is going on here? This guy doesn't care about the Lord. Why does he care about Elisha? Well, it's because he has some recognition of the importance of Elisha. I don't know, maybe he's heard the stories about how his grandfather, Jehu, was anointed king by Elisha and his servants. Maybe it was that he heard the stories about how the army of Syria came up to Elisha and they were led off, struck blind, and brought to the king. Perhaps some of these mighty miracles of making an axe head float had come to him. But there's some, obviously, some recognition of the importance of Elisha, and he wept at his impending death. He wept because he says this, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. Now what does that have to do with Elisha? Well, go, go way back to chapter 2, verse 12. Elijah, 
the, the first of these, these prophets, prophets Elijah, Elijah and Elisha. Elijah, Elijah was, was about to be taken up to heaven in a fiery whirlwind. And Elisha, as he sees Elijah about to go off, he says these words. My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him no more. Now, if you like me, when you first read that, you think Elisha is talking about the fiery chariots going off into heaven. But from this passage in chapter 13, we understand that that's not what he's talking about. He's actually talking about the prophet Elijah himself. Because when here... This pagan king, after all, Jehoahaz is really a pagan king. He cries out, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and his horsemen. Now, he doesn't hear see the chariots that are about to take Elisha up into heaven, but he recognizes that Elisha is about to die. And he recognizes that Elisha embodies the strength and the power and the might of the defense of the people of Israel. Because he's a prophet of the Lord. And it's the Lord who is the shield of Israel. He recalled the might of the prophetic office. He had at least heard about it. He at least was learned in it. And then Elisha, even on his deathbed, with that prophetic office still upon him, he gives him a measure of grace for the nation of Israel, this unworthy king. And he says to him, take a bow and arrows, and he does. And there's these strange things. Notice here, Elisha doesn't give big speeches. He just gives simple commands. Shoot, take it up, do these things, whatever. Jehoahaz becomes a recipient of undeserved grace here. First of all, he has him shoot an arrow out the window. That arrow, Elisha says, is the Lord's arrow of victory. So here they are. Their enemy, Syria, is going to cause them problems. They've been causing them problems throughout the reigns of the several kings before them. They're the constant enemy of the people of Israel. It's no different here. They're being oppressed. In fact, his father's reign, it says that the people were oppressed and God was hearing the oppression of the people he says, this is the arrow of victory. In fact, the word here, as we understand, is the word salvation. So this arrow of victory is from God through this prophetic mediation. Notice here the illustration of this mediation. Here, Elisha takes his hands, his aged hands, on his deathbed, and he puts them on the hands of of this king. And as the king shoots this arrow, it's a reminder that it's not the king's strength, it's the strength of the Lord through this mediation of the prophet that shoots this arrow of salvation for Israel. And he makes this promise. He says here, this is the arrow of victory, for you shall fight the Syrians in Aphek until you have made an end of them. In other words, he's giving him an undeserved promise of victory. But that wasn't the end of the event. He also has him take up the arrows a second time, and he takes them. He says to the king, strike the ground with them. He struck them three times, 
and stopped. And then the man of God grew angry with him and said, You should have struck five or six times, then you would have struck down Syria until you'd made an end of it, but now you will strike down Syria only three times. What in the world is going on here? You see, this is questioning the response of this king to the promise of God. These are arrows in a sense of his zeal. In other words, if he understands what God is saying to him, he will with great glee do whatever God asks him to do at this point, including continuously striking arrows into the ground until Elisha tells him to stop. Elisha didn't say, shoot three and then stop. He said, shoot them into the ground. The assumption is perhaps all the arrows that are there in his possession, he needs to shoot down into the ground, but instead it's a half-hearted response. He does three, he's probably thinking to myself, why am I doing this? This is ridiculous. And he stops. Only three. And so because of his response, probably much more, the Lord knows his heart response, and Elisha responds to that. And Elisha says, because of what you have done, only striking three arrows into the ground, there will now be an incomplete victory. You will conquer Syria three times, but it will not finish off the country for good. His response indicates what he thought of the word of God. Here's this king. He had no business getting grace from God. He was an idol worshiper. He was not interested in the things of the Lord. He knew about the Lord. He knew about the prophet of the Lord. He knew about the might and the power and the history that was symbolically illustrated through the prophetic office of Elijah and Elisha. He knew all those things. And yet when he was given the promise that if he obeyed God, then he would receive the victory of Syria over Syria, it was a half-hearted response. This is the problem. Even with us sometimes. The problem with today's sellout to the modern sociological and psychological movements is this. They tell us we can't change the way we are. They tell us you can't change a leper's spots. There's no even real way to do this. And so therefore, we have to understand you can't conquer what the world will call a condition or some kind of addiction, or something like that. You can't do that because we all know in the end there is no power to change. The problem is this flies in the face of the truth of God's word. God says we can change. We're new creatures in Christ. In fact, we're told that now we stop being who we were and we start being somebody new. We stop being children of wrath. We start becoming children of God. We stop being thieves and we start becoming those who earn an honest living in order to be generous and give to others. We stop being those who are conquered by sexual depravity and we start being those who live a life worthy of our calling in Christ. You see, if you try to conquer sin halfway, we're simply trying to contain the sin, not to conquer it. It doesn't work. My analysis of the last 50 years or even more, probably more like 60 or 70 years now of American history, is when we started fighting battles across the sea, we stopped fighting them to win them. We just fought them to contain them. 
so that the wickedness or the evil of what we saw, contrary to freedom and all the things that we thought our country stood for, is a, a serious thing all the worldwide, as we seek to contain those things, but we don't rid the world of those things. In other words, spiritually here, we're talking about being lukewarm. Are you all about conquering sin? And as the old terminology would say, to mortify sin, that is to kill it off in your life. Or are you all about just trying to contain it because secretly you still enjoy those pleasures? That's lukewarmness. What did Jesus say about being lukewarm? He would spit us out of our mouths. Here is the reaction of Jehoash. He knows about the promises. He knows about the prophet. He knows about the prophecy that he was given personally about a victory that was to come, and his response is half-hearted. We find out that the whole nation has become unworthy. It's become unworthy, first of all, for the ministry of Elisha. Here's Elisha. What a strange and bizarre couple of verses these are. Verses 20 and 21 in chapter 13. So Elisha died, and they buried him. It talks about these bands of Moabites, these raiders that would come and invade the land in the spring of the year. So every spring, these bands or these uh, gangs of robbers would come and they would try and steal some of the things that the people had or care, perhaps carry off some of the people. This happened, a man was being buried. In other words, in the midst of a graveside service, here are these robbers that are coming. They see them in the distance and they throw the dead body into the grave or the tomb of Elisha. As soon as that man was thrown into the grave, he touches, this body touches the bones of Elisha and the man revives and stands on his feet. <laughs> what is going on here? Very bizarre. First of all, you have to remember the ministry of Elisha. There's power in the word of God. You know, people came to life in the power of the ministry of the Lord through Elijah and Elisha. There were children that, that came to life after dying. There were people that were healed from grave diseases. There were armies that were conquered. The, the power of this prophetic office as they mediate between God and men in this unique period of history is a reminder of the power of God's word. But the other thing we're reminded of is the vitality of God's word. He is able to bring life where there was no life previously. This has been the constant theme of the prophetic office of Elisha. He brings life to a nation that is dead and unworthy. And consistently, they conquer pagan gods, they conquer pagan enemies, they bring victory again and again, both in a personal way to unnamed individuals often, and to the entire nation and the kings, and this was no exception. Many commentators, when they see this particular section of scripture, say that, that this illustration of someone coming to life by touching the bones of David reminds us that God's promise is not dependent upon the life of his people. It continues beyond the grave. 
Because it's not on the power of Elisha, it's on the power of God, who is the giver of life. And so this confirms the promise given to Jehoash that this victory over Syria will really take place. And then we understand it's completely by the grace of God. It says, now Haziel, king of Syria, oppressed Israel all the days of Jehoahaz. This reminds us it wasn't just a Jehoash problem. It was a Jehoahaz problem, a Jehoash problem, and a Jeroboam problem. Three generations of kings. Syria was greatly oppressing them. We saw in chapter 13 that God was going to raise up a savior in Israel. Some commentators believe that it was actually a dual savior. One was Jehoash because of his victories three times over Syria. The other is Jeroboam because he completes the conquest. But here, reminder, this is all about God's grace because verse 23 says, But the Lord was gracious to them and had compassion on them, and he turned to them. Now you want to hear him say, because they were following him, because they had a great zealous response to his promise, but no, it's because of his covenant. Not with David even. It goes way back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he would not destroy them, nor has he cast them from his presence until now. In fact, it's indicating here, by the time these words of Elisha and these words about this historical event were taking place, they still were in the land. Why? Because God's covenant of grace. He was gracious because of the covenant, his promise, his faithfulness. It had nothing to do with their obedience because they did not obey. It had nothing to do with their worthiness because they were unworthy. It had nothing to do with their significance because they were not a significant people. It was because of God's promise. And this graciousness was due to the Lord's patience. He would wait for king after king after king after Jehoash and Jeroboam. And yet here, here again is the victory. When Hazel, king of Syria, died, his son Ben-Hadad became king in his place. Then Jehoash, the son of Jehoahaz, took again from Ben-Hadad, the son of Hazel, the cities that he had taken from Jehoahaz, his father, and war three times. Joash defeated him and recovered the cities of Israel. These are only the ones on the west side of the Jordan. Jeroboam, when he becomes king, he will actually establish once again the boundaries of Israel and extend again into Gilead on the east side of the Jordan River. But these victories over Syria were fulfilled. Why? Because the Lord was keeping his promise and was patient with his people, even through an insignificant king. In the whole light of history, Jehoash gets a four-verse synopsis of his career as king. And it basically says he was evil and wicked, was born and died. And by the way, here is the most significant time when he could have responded with great zeal and obedience to the Lord, and he had a half-hearted response. When I was growing up, the Disney company was known as being family-friendly and generally moral entertainment. We enjoyed it. We watched many movies. In fact, my kids still watch movies from when I was a boy and even before. They went from generally moral entertainment values to a promotion now of questionable, at best, moral system built upon first making money 
and now in the promotion of perverse ideas that destroy rather than build up the family. What a turn of events. They still have some box office successes. Despite their inept and insignificant leadership amongst their CEOs and others, when will that company be destroyed? God's word and God's faithfulness are the key. He has hope for individuals and churches and nations because it's in his promises and not in our worthiness. It's in his prophecies and not in the things of this world. You see, there is common grace, yes, on the just and the unjust. There is also covenantal grace to families of believers. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, God has covenant promises and grace that he specifically gives to you because you read his word, you follow his ways, and you love him. There is hope, love, and mercy, and truth from the faithful God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the God of Jesus, the Messiah. He is patient, but that patience is not never-ending. Even as we read these words of grace to an unworthy king, of grace to an unworthy people, of grace to a person who had an unworthy response to the gospel, we are reminded our response to God's grace he knows. He knows whether we're lukewarm. He knows whether we're all in or all out. He gives grace to the unworthy, but it takes the Spirit of God to change our hearts. Let us pray for the Spirit to work in us. That this grace to us, that we still exist as a pagan nation, the United States of America. Yes, a pagan nation, by and large that we still exist as a nation, that we still exist as a society, that we still are awaiting the day of destruction, let us be reminded that we need God's grace of conviction and change that we might live forever. Let's bow in prayer. Lord, we know our unworthiness. We are sinners. We are not better than Jehoash by nature, but only by your changing grace. Lord, help us, help us to see your promise and your prophecy of victory over sin and death and help us to be all in, help us to be about your kingdom, not because we can get there on our own, but because you can change us and mold us and shape us to be your people. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.